0: I'm Mitchell Kaplan, and you're listening to The Literary Life. We're so pleased to now be hosted on Literary Hub. We can be found on Lithub Radio at lithub.com and all other podcast platforms as well. Today, my guest is the great Leonard Pitts Jr. You know, I often go online, as most people do when they have a guest, and you check around on the internet, and I was stumbled across Leonard's website. And I was really charmed by the author note. And I thought I would read a little bit of it without embarrassing you too much, Leonard. This is how Leonard Pitts' website describes Leonard. You know how kids go through phases? You know how the average little boy or girl wants to be a doctor this week, a video game designer next week? Leonard Pitts Jr. never did that. He says that from the tender age of five years old, little more than a fetus with pretensions, as he puts it, he knew what he wanted to do. Indeed, he knew what he was put here to do. We're talking about a very long time ago, when Leonard Pitts was five, John F. Kennedy was still in the White House, White's only signs were still on the walls, and the Beatles had not yet invaded America. The world has changed a great deal since then, but one thing never did. In a career that now spans 43 years, Leonard Pitts Jr. has worked as a columnist, a college professor, a radio producer, and a lecturer. But those are just the job titles. If you ask him what he does, what he is, he'll tell you now what he would have told you then, he is a writer. And I can say millions of people are glad he is. They read him every week in one of the most popular newspaper columns in the country. Many more have come to know him through a series of critically acclaimed books, including his latest, a novel of race, faith, and World War II called The Last Thing You Surrender. Leonard's stubborn devotion to the art and craft of words has yielded many awards, chief among them the 2004 Pulitzer Prize for Commentary. But that was only the capstone of a career filled with prizes for literary excellence. Twice each week, millions of newspaper readers around the country seek out his rich and uncommonly resonant voice. In a word, he connects with them. Tavis Smiley called Leonard Pitts the most insightful and inspiring columnist of his generation. And when Leonard won his Pulitzer, Bob Costas wondered... What took them so long? Leonard Pitts was born and raised in Southern California. He was awarded a degree in English from the University of Southern California at the age of 19, having entered school at 15 on a special honors program. Since 1995, he and his wife have lived in Bowie, Maryland, a suburb of Washington, D.C. And I can say, parenthetically, that even though Leonard lives in D.C., all of us in Miami think of him as one of our own, because his column has originally originally appeared in the Miami Herald, and it's syndicated now all across the country, but we still think of you, Leonard, as a Miami Herald guy. I am South Florida property, yes. <laughs> yes. So, welcome to Literary Life, Thank Leonard. you very much. Your new book, which is called The Last Thing You Surrender, why don't you tell us a little bit about it, and- What brought you to it and why you've been interested in writing, and this is not the first one, Mm -hmm. but you've written a series of books that have tackled the subject of race from a historical perspective.
1: Well, um, as you may or may not know about me, I'm fascinated by, by history but the uh f- for for me history is only like half the story history is what happened historical fiction is how it felt how it smelled how it you know what what it was like to be there in the moment that it happened so you know that's always been the attraction there for me there's there's a wealth of historical fiction covering a lot of things there's not so much covering the African American aspect of of American history so to me it's uh this uh this broad field that I get to have you know there's other people doing it but I get to have more it's not crowded we'll put it like that I get to have more or less right. to, 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 to myself so you know it, it, it it's my playground I get I get to go there and, and enjoy myself um, this particular book uh, follows uh, two families one uh, African American the other white through the um, through the, the the carnage of the second World War it follows them uh, from mobile which is their hometown it follows them into uh, the war in the Pacific and it follows them to the war in uh, in Europe and essentially it's a novel about about uh, faith um, and about obviously the cost of war, but also about how we construct this thing called uh, called race. Um, one of the things that I was getting at in writing the book is that you know whether you're talking about the the Holocaust and the, and the slaughter of the Jews, whether you're talking about slavery and Jim Crow, whether you're talking about things that don't appear in the book, such as uh, uh, the, the mistreatment of LGBTQ people, or even the uh, Japanese uh, internment, which which does appear in the book. To me, they're all you know, we we tend to view them as discrete, separate things, but to me, they're all parts of the same story. And when you're when you're going through your part, you don't see it as such. Perhaps when you're when you're an African American dealing with Jim Crow or with uh, mass incarceration, you don't see it as such. Or when you're a woman dealing with uh, you know the the mistreatment by the patriarchy or oppression by the patriarchy, you don't see it as such. But when you really sort of step back, which is what I tried to do with this book, you see the sort of tapestry of the way we as human beings mistreat one another. Across all of these lines, many of which—not all of which—but many of which we made up, you know, we invented. Many of the lines we made up. Our lines that we uh, made the, the lines that we mistreat people across are lines that we that we invented, probably specifically for that purpose.
0: And you begin to see the roots of them all. Yeah. And it and yeah. the, the connections that yeah. are actually made. Yeah, I think they're that, not discrete yeah. instances. Yeah. You can't talk about the racism in World War Two right. without talking about what comes after it. Yeah, actually. and before it. Yeah. And before it. Yeah.
1: Before I think it. I think there is in, in a lot of us this idea that uh unless I have somebody to be better oh, than, man. then I am not you know, I, I am not all that I can be. I think that there seems to be this human need uh, of some people to 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 put other people down, to have somebody that they that they can put uh, that they can put down. One of the characters in the book, Earl Ray Hodges, is a guy, you know, who's very poor, not very well educated, has a physical disability, and almost almost literally the only thing that he has in life is the fact that he's white, and he clings to that with a with a desperation that makes him, I think, almost literally crazy. Mm. You know Earl Ray's uh, hatred and racism is 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 so extreme that even racists look at him and say, you know, slow down there, you know, because he 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 he's, he clings to that so desperately it's 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 unbalanced him.
0: And you also do something in this mm. book too is is you're not only bringing characters into the into the brutality of war, mm. but you're also showing what the home front is like, yeah, and the and the kind of. Um, The dichotomy that exists there.
1: Well, it's fascinating to me that, um, after, you know, two years after Pearl Harbor, after this great cataclysmic event that supposedly brought us all together as Americans, much like, you know, shortly after 9-11, but two years after Pearl Harbor, there were race riots in, um, three American, I believe it was in LA, uh, Detroit, New York, and, um, and uh, in the one that I depict in the book in Mobile. I think the LA riot may have been in 44, if I'm not mistaken, I may be getting the years wrong, but, but the point is that shortly after Pearl Harbor, you know, there's all these riots over race, you know, at a time when you would think we as Americans would be pulling together. And the Mobile riot that's depicted in the book is is particularly telling to me because this riot shuts down a major shipyard, uh, at a time when, you know, there's a desperate need for, for, for weapons of war because our guys are literally, you know, dying overseas. And yet it's more important to these to, to, to the white workers at the shipyard to defend the, the prerogatives of whiteness than it is to make sure that there's enough ships for the men who are going into harm's way in, in, the, in the Pacific and in, the, uh, and in the, um, the Atlantic. That to me is, that's an amazing statement to me. That's an amazing statement. Your whiteness is more important than the country itself. And, you know, it's not hard to draw a parallel from that to- To right now. Yeah, to more recent events. Yeah.
0: No, and and what's so interesting for me to be sitting across from you right now is, of course, you've been dealing in your columns and in your newspaper work with issues of race and inequality uh, across across everything. Mm. And you've been doing that for years and years and years and years. What is it, what is it, what, how must it seem to you that now, you know, even after having an African-American president with Barack, that now race has become one of the more defining issues of the day? Well, everybody, well, I won't say everybody, but some people said after uh,
1: uh, President Obama was elected in 2008, took office in 2009, well, we're in post-racial America, you know, and... You know, that's sort of reflective of the fact that we always, as Americans, and particularly white Americans, you know, tend to think that our problem is going to be solved at a lightning bolt moment. There's going to be this moment that solves everything. And right after uh, Obama uh, came into office, I interviewed Lerone, the late Lerone Bennett Jr., who's a historian uh, for uh, Johnson Publications. And I asked him about this. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, I'm an old cat. You know, I I think he was 84 years old at the time. I, I, this isn't the first time racism has been solved. <laughs> <laughs> People said the same thing in 1865 after the end of the Civil War. Right. They said it after the uh, passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. They said it in 1954 after Brown v. Board of Education. They said it in '64 after the Civil Rights Act. They said it in '65 after the Voting Rights Act. So, it says this is an absolutely a pattern. You know that 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 we say, okay, done. <laughs> You know we finished this we got it solved next problem. So you know the the election of, of President Obama important as it was and transcendent as it was was also part of this same pattern of us thinking that this issue is going to be solved without ever facing ourselves and doing the hard work of of, of sort of dealing with the forces that have made us uh, into the into the nation that we are for good and for bad
0: frankly. Do, do you think the rise of of Trump and his followers has that? in and of itself, caused us to confront things that we always sort of pushed down for a long, long time. Yeah, it's made it... Because he's so much out there.
1: It has made it um, impossible to ignore. You know, we, we spent a long time ignoring. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've been writing this column for twenty-four years. Twenty-four years, and I if I had a dime for every person who's told me that I'm writing about something that doesn't exist. You know, in terms of race, you know, I would be too rich to sit here and talk with you. <laughs> Just you look like true. I get told that a lot. Just the other day, I think it was Tucker Carlson on Fox oh. News says that you know, yeah, white supremacy, uh, yeah, white doesn't, supremacy doesn't exist. John Voight sent out a video on on Twitter that said, uh, "We solved something to the effect of we solved race long ago." So you know the, the 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 whole idea that people can sit and say that respect you know theoretically respectable people can say that kind of tells you what the problem is. Is that we we won't face ourselves. We as Americans will not face the forces that made us. I was just tweeting this afternoon about um about uh, a person who went to a plant who gave a two star review. I think it was on Yelp to a plantation that they toured because they were upset because the, 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 the tour guide kept talking about slaves. And all. <laughs> well, um, oh, yeah. it's a plantation. Just,
0: they just wanted to look at the gardens. They wanted to look at is- the gardens <laughs> and the
1: house. and And that is sort of emblematic of our approach as Americans, to our history, we want to look at all the pretty stuff, but we don't want to deal with all of the bad stuff. I have written about, you know, if I write about the moon landing, if I write about the Marshall Plan, if I write about the Normandy invasion, I could write about those ten times in a row. Nobody will ever say say boo to me. If I write a column about race, I guarantee you somebody will say, "That's all you ever write about. Why can't you let it go?" That, well, history, is, that, that history is taboo.
0: I know you've talked you about know? it, but your columns, one particular column. Led to some serious death threats in yeah. That was the um,
1: yeah. That was the um, the uh, column on the murder of these uh, these this white couple in uh, in Tennessee. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the end of that column said the, the the last line of that column, which is the line that that set them off, was the most laser focused and carefully addressed line I've probably ever written. It's, it addressed itself to to the lunatics and crazies or whatever it said, who have chosen this tragedy upon which to make an obscene stand. So this is addressed to you, here's, here's your address. And then it said, cry me a river. And uh, the people who, um, you know, the white supremacists, uh, claimed, uh, cause it, you know, that they have an amazing facility for not knowing or not seeing what's right in front of them. Right. The white supremacists said that that was my message to the family of families of this, this grieving couple of the, the grieving families of this murdered couple, which was, you know, obscene. <laughs> That was just obscene. And the, the worst part of it, you know, the death threats and all that stuff and the, the dislocation of life was very difficult. But one of the other things that, that really hurt was when I got a call from, I think it was the uncle of the murdered girl mm-hmm. asking if I had said this about his, about his niece. And I had to explain to him, no, sir, I'd never say anything like that. You know, you're, you're, you're grieving. You're in a place that I could, I, I could never want to be. And all I can do is wish you God's grace. You know, I would never say anything like that to you. And he, he you know, he, he seemed satisfied and kind of got off the phone. But it's like, it was, it was just, it was amazing that uh, that they could take something that was, you know, it. It was one of the things that first showed me um, how little facts matter. <laughs> you know, it was it was sort of a coming uh, a sign of, of I guess where we're coming to, and I've been writing about that for a long time. But this whole idea that you can take something that is specifically addressed. Dear crazy people, this is to you. Right. You know, and say that I'm saying this to the to the family of the murdered of the murdered couple that was just amazing.
0: Well, it's interesting and because we have a president now yeah. who is you know such an identifiable liar about yeah. just about everything where facts don't matter. In fact, right. yeah, we're I'm speaking to to Leonard in the wake of what's happened over the last number of days in in El Paso and other places. And both Cory Booker and uh, Joe Biden have given these long talks and long speeches on race. And Biden's, I think, biggest applause line came where he said, uh, we need a world in which there's facts over lies (laughs) because we've been subjected to so many Untruths so far.
1: Well, it's this whole idea that you know the truth is whatever I needed to be. Right. Uh, there's this uh, retreat from critical thinking, and the problem with that is, you know, you can you can say whatever you want, and people can believe whatever they want, but the facts—none of that changes the facts. Right. You know, the analogy that I use in speeches is that you can say that gravity has been repealed and you can get a a bunch of people in your cult to agree with you that gravity has been repealed. The moment you walk off the top of this building, you know, gravity will reassert itself. Well, and and
0: I think you agree with me that the problem with the end of critical thinking or a lack of critical thinking leads to things like scapegoating yeah it leads to people believing that barack obama wasn't born in the united states <laughs> it leads it to leads the, to all kinds of horrible things
1: it leads to el paso is terribly dangerous because yes. of all the immigrants there when apparently el paso is one of the most one of the safer cities in the united in states 18 murders in a year yeah, if, yeah. Well, don't only. you wish don't you <laughs> wish miami <could laughs> exactly, claim that, you know? exactly. <laughs> i wish my hometown could claim and it's that, almost you know?
0: as big as miami yeah. it's got three and a half million people when you take the mexican side yeah so of this city so
1: but 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 People, people have absolutely given themselves permission to avoid to avoid believing whatever the facts are, and uh, you know I remember there was a lady that wrote me um, uh, to challenge something that I wrote, and I and I she wanted my source, and I told her my source was the New York Times, and there was a government study. That said the same thing, and her, her response was, "Are well, you going to believe a study from the government and the New York Times?" Oh, I'm sorry, I don't know anymore. Those <laughs> in my world, those are authoritative sources. Right. Not to say they're perfect, but it would, but it is to say, okay, that that's usually pretty considered, pretty, uh, considered pretty much an authoritative source. What is yours, Sean Hannity? I mean, it's like, and probably it is, <laughs> and that's and that's what time it is in this country. So you you, you have to be, you know. You have to be very worried for the future of this country, for that and and, and myriad other reasons. You have to be very worried.
0: You know, I saw an interview in which you talked. This was an interview Mm -hmm. about almost a year and a half ago, two years ago or Mm -hmm. so, right when the election happened, Mm -hmm. uh, right after the Charlottesville uh, incident. And you said you were very pessimistic about what was going to come. Yeah. Is there anything that makes you more optimistic about what's going to come, or are we still in this? I remain pessimistic. You remain pessimistic. Not just because the
1: forces of evil are so effective, but because the forces of good are so scattered, disorganized, and unsure of themselves. Uh, it has taken media uh, an unconscionable period of time to finally acknowledge and call this guy what he's what he uh, what he was a year ago. <laughs> you know what he was a year and it, i mean i've been arguing in, in in writing columns and 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 on twitter or whatever just arguing with editors about labeling what he what he says a lie what did you think about what happened with the new york times were with they, that headline with that headline i'm glad that they changed it but it also showed the, the fact that they would put that headline up shows how how much they have yet to learn explain it for people who might the not headline was uh trump um was it speaks against racism and and gun or, or and for but di- doesn't attack for, for diverse, something yeah. about the, the, the gist um, of it was that was that he was endorsing um, you know diversity he was in, in, in right.
0: and, you, spoke out against white supremacist yeah. uh, supremacy and something and it's like
1: come on guys really right. are we are we to be that naive can we not after all this time and after all this evidence take that with like a little grain of salt. When Trump says, when Trump, as, as Biden put it so brilliantly, you know, with a, with a vacant stare and low energy, you know, <laughs> reads these words, someone else has written that, you know, diversity is wonderful and, and multi, you know, can we not say, okay, maybe we should take that with a little grain of salt? And the fact that they had a headline that seemed to, uh, that seemed to, to, to uh, confirm that and to seem to give it, give, give it credit was just amazing. It's like, how blind are you going to be? I think I, I think the country's in trouble. I've, I've gotten into, I, I've said and people have raised eyebrows, but I've said that, you know, I think it's an even bet whether this country exists in the same form 20 years from now. And, I, and I'll stand I stand by that because I think I think we're in a great deal, of, uh, a great deal of trouble. And it's not it's not just Donald Trump. It's the fact that, you know, w- we've got a country where half the country does not like and despises
0: the other half. Well, were you talking about forty-four? Yeah. You've said it. Forty-four yeah. percent of the people are are yeah. are in favor of yeah. Them of what, so so, I don't see because we're
1: not a people who are held together by by common bloodline or common you know racial quote unquote ancestry like the Japanese, the Koreans, right. or whatever. We are a people who are held together by a common creed, supposedly and in theory we hold these truths to be self evident. If if some of us believe in those in those in those truths and some of us don't then what else what what holds us together anymore you know the the, the thing i was i was talking to somebody the other day I said i think we kind of missed the soviet union because the other thing that always held us together was a con- was an enemy a common enemy you know an enemy even the even the moon landing that we that we just celebrated came out of we got to beat the soviets to the moon You know, once we got there, we didn't know what to do with it. But we, yay! We 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 planted the flag. We beat the Soviets to the moon. We don't have a sense of mission anymore. We don't have a common enemy anymore. You know, uh, the the, uh, radicalized uh, Islamists, you know, terrorists, whatever you want to call it. That kind of, you know, I don't want to make light of it, but after nine eleven, that's kind of receded a bit in terms of our in terms of our uh, national concern. So the question becomes an existential one for us as Americans: What holds us together? Are our ideals enough to hold us together? Can we can we be America without having to fight the commies or the uh, or the or the, uh, the 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 Muslims or the, whoever the enemy of the day is? Can we be America
0: without that? That's the we question. We can't has to be even answered. agree on common threats. We are hmm. denying global warming. Yeah, <laughs> that would be a great something to Wouldn't want to come together great? on. Yes. That would be a great Let's something. to us solve that be... in yeah. ten years.
1: Let America lead the way. Right. and and solve that that would be a great you know if we if we treated that with the same energy that we treated we've got to get to the moon right we could save the planet we could save because we we're we're the country that has the resources and the ingenuity we could absolutely save the planet but you know there's no you know saving the world doesn't doesn't give us a chance to to rub it in the face of of the Russians or the
0: Muslims or who whoever it is whoever's the enemy of the day well you know your columns are so spot on that i was looking through the more recent Mm. ones and there was one that you wrote just a couple of days ago i think it was on the sixth at least appeared Mm. in the herald on the sixth and i know that you don't write the headlines but the headline in the column was republicans either cowed or clueless are useless after a mass shooting right and it was such a brilliant i mean the the way you, you those of you out there who have not read it please find it and read it i mean it is um so, it 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 struck a chord that was so true, which is the case with all of your most of Thank most you. all of your writing. And what's interesting to me, and I think we can talk a little bit about it if we go backward a little bit, is you didn't start out as a as a columnist. I mean, you were covering music, yeah, for was, so many years. How many years was that? That you I were was a, a music writer shooter? totally for eighteen
1: years, yeah. Uh, I started, you started elsewhere. Started when? When were you? When 1976 were you? to 1994. So Donna Summer to Snoop Doggy Dog.
0: <laughs> so you started in yeah. you started in um, with Donna Summer yeah. and disco and yeah. and ended with rap and ended with rap
1: or, or rap ended me depending on how you, <laughs> depending on how you want to look. No, at you've it. written about that. Talk yeah. about that a little bit. I, know I that just you've... I just reached a point where where I knew the music was not talking to me anymore. And when you when you begin a um, you start beginning every review with a reference to somebody who hasn't had a hit in fifteen years, you know, then it, it, right. it yeah then kind of okay your 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 tastes have shifted the world you know it's passed you by and it's time to move on. I mean there are people who can who can be I think the the, the, the ideal age to be a to be a pop music critic is probably late thirties because you you have enough years under you to have some perspective you've seen a few things come and go. Uh, but you're not, you know, your, your musical arteries haven't hardened. <laughs> okay. And, uh, when I did 1994, when I stopped, I was what? I was, uh, pushing 40, I guess it was. So it was right about time. It was right about time to, uh, you know, to, just to, to hang it up. Cause I wasn't, I wasn't interested. I didn't, I didn't Who care. Who were you writing for at that time? Miami Herald. I, you wrote for the yeah, Herald. I wrote for the Herald show. as a music writer from 91 to 94. And then uh, this column started uh, concurrently with the music column for a few months, and I, I left music completely. Uh, I think the end of '94.
0: God, you know, I think I remember when that was happening. Yeah, you yeah. were starting to you started to write some columns. Yeah, when they expanded the opinion section, right. I remember the Miami Herald, right. and you were writing alongside of Dave Barry and mm-hmm. Carl Hyasson. Yeah. And all of those guys yeah. as well. The, H- the Herald didn't it have a, it had a golden age. Herald had a had a murderer's row <laughs> of, of writers it, and columnists. It really,
1: really know, did. Yeah.
0: And you were living in Miami at the time. Or I not? lived in Miami
1: until '95, so ninety April '91 to uh, January '95. And what precipitated the move? Uh, I liked. Um, I liked it. I wanted to live in the D.C. area. I liked the the, the greater D.C. area. As a history buff, I liked the fe- the idea of having the Smithsonian right down the road. I still you know that's still like christmas morning to me when i get to go in there and and spend the day looking up some obscure whatever fact for a book or something like that
0: does it help Mm -hmm. you with your do do you get involved with oh going to some of the think tank meetings or any of the politics of it all or any of that no you just you're still
1: an observer yeah in that sense yeah which i want which is what i want to be i don't want to be you know, and maybe it's easy to say this because I haven't been because I haven't been asked, but I really don't want to go to the to the uh, cocktail parties with these guys. <laughs> no. You know, I, I just—it's funny how many yeah. people do up there. And yeah, how incestuous. They, they they they, they want to do they they want to do that, and like I said, maybe it's easy to say I don't want it because I haven't been asked, but I I think I, I think I'm I think I'm sincere and genuine in that. I really have no particular interest in going to the cocktail parties or doing the, the think tank stuff with them. I, I like I like being a, an observer from the outside.
0: As a lot of people, I'm sure, ask you, and mm. it may be a question that's over-asked, mm. but I'm always interested in it. With all that's going on in the world, how do, what is the process of settling on a column? I mean, how, what how, what comes together says, okay, this is what I'm going to write about, and you spend the time doing that? Uh it's generally
1: either feast or famine. Either there's too many topics, or there's, or there's, you know, not topics enough. Uh, but on the days when there's too many topics, you have to live with them and 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 just sort of, you know, you've you've got you've got them in your head, and then just see what bubbles to the surface. You know, something eventually is going to catch on the gears. Something there's going to be a, a a lead or something that's going to that's going to come to you, and then there's going to be something after that and something after that, and you're going to realize that there's that there's something that you want to say there. Um, but it's it's really you, you, I used to have to push at it. You know, I used to really push hard at it, um, and particularly in terms of finding a topic. And sometimes when I get desperate, maybe I still do, but most of the time I, I find it's better just to to. Kick back to to graze all available news sources, see what's going on in the world, and then just let something bubble to the top. You know, see what comes to me. Now, some weeks, it, you know, some weeks is obvious. After the the shootings in Dayton and El Paso, there's no way I'm writing about you know anything else but, right. but that 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 has to be written about. But other weeks, it's a matter of looking at the uh, looking at the news, looking at the calendar, seeing what's going on. My next column is on the 50th anniversary of Woodstock, uh, which I uh, you know I. Didn't know if I was going to write about it, And I saw uh, CBS News Sunday morning had a really nice piece, and it was a quote by Graham Nash that I liked. And it just sort of set off this whole chain of thought. And I, I decided to make oh, that the column. That. Yeah, I just filed it, it should post uh, Friday night.
0: Well, and you know, they're coming out with that box set, which is, did yeah. you know about it? It's no. like 39 record, 39 pieces of whatever, either records really? or CDs of the entire run of what came off the stage of Woodstock really? with all of the announcements and everything else. I don't know how much I want to listen to all of that. I don't know either, but it'd
1: be <laughs> kind of nice to have. I was too young, you know. I, you I was know, too young too. Yeah, to but I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to get some, all I've seen is the snippets and the outtakes and, right. you know, Hendrix doing uh, the Star Spangled Banner and all this stuff, but right. I'd like to I'd like to get some better sense and of Richie it. Havens Richie Havens. Richie Havens, Joe Cocker. It.
0: yeah. No, that was a glorious time. I can yeah. see why you wanted to become a rock and roll yeah. critic or a yeah. pop music critic. Yeah. I think that was something that all of us of a certain age, and I think I'm around the same age as mm-hmm. you, all of us of a certain age, rock and roll was our politics you might yeah. say of the time yeah yeah it and was our politics
1: says. it was our means of of communication unfortunately for me i became a rock, uh, a, a music critic right as disco was coming in so I i've always <laughs> i always felt kind of cheated yeah you <laughs> ruined it for the yeah, rest I of us it. Maybe it to just, me you know, that was the end of music know, at that point. i got in to write about al green and i ended up writing about the brides of funkenstein <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just, right. i really right. felt you know hey i didn't get i didn't get what i came here for <laughs> that's yeah. funny
0: that's really funny but But, but so talk about, I mean, you talk about how, you know, the columns used Mm. to have to press for the Mm. columns. You don't have to anymore. Mm. What are you, what are you able to do in your novels that you're not able to do in your columns?
1: Uh, Expand. Column is, um, is, uh, you know, you have more room to play around with. Uh, It's historical fiction. So it's, it's based in fact, but uh, other than that, the rules are what you say they are. The truth is what you say it is uh so you know you just have it's it's a lot you have a lot more room to play you have a lot more room to play and it, 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 to me it's 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 a lot more fun i've always wanted to be uh a novelist even more than than as a um than as a, a columnist now novel writing was to me the, the the best job that you could get uh so you know i'm I'm just
0: i'm really happy and, and pleased well you've to be able done to do it this. all yeah and, I, yeah and you know the reviews on this have been outstanding and um I know that it will resonate just as your others uh, have. What I'd like you to do, if you'd like, mm-hmm. I mean, I know that you're going to do it tonight when we do the event, mm-hmm. and I should have warned you probably, but <laughs> if you would like to read a small passage from the book, if a that's possible. A small passage. Because Be fine and we timed. like, well, we like doing that here, just to give give our listeners some flavor of the book. Okay, well, we better we better uh, tap dance while I try to find the passage that might work. Well, you know, actually, while you're looking, uh, let me ask another question because it's something I think people are going to be interested in. You had a more recent example of a threat that was a very unusual threat. You had a bogus nine eleven call, nine one one call to your house, right. which could have ended with in catastrophe. Do you want to talk about that a little bit as you're...
1: Um, sure. Um, You know, it was uh, 4.38 in the morning, uh, 4.38, 4.48, I've told the story so often I'm forgetting the time, but um got a call before five o'clock in the morning uh, from the city of Bowie, uh, and I picked up the phone and they said that uh, they identified themselves as the city of Bowie police and said, have you looked outside your window? And I you know, had a smart answer, which I didn't give them, which is who's looking outside their window at, you know, four something in the morning. Uh, and they told me that half the city of Bowie Police Department was outside. And, you know, they'd gotten uh, they'd gotten a call that I'd murdered my wife and uh, that I needed to come downstairs, uh, not, you know, keep the phone to my ear and, uh, you know, stay on the phone and, and come downstairs and, and, um, and come out the door. And, uh, you know, my murdered wife sits up and says, what, you know, what's going on? <laughs> Who are you talking to? And I, I, I don't want to break away from from, from them, you know, because they sound very serious. But I, I put the phone very, br- you know, briefly on mute, and I tell them they say I've killed you. You know, and I need this. The police they say I've killed you and I need to go downstairs and and meet them. And, uh, you know, I leave her with that. <laughs> and then I go downstairs and I walk out the front door and there's a spotlight here from my right. There's another spotlight on my left and I can't see anything really beyond that. I hear a voice telling me to come to, my, to put the cell phone down, come to my left. I walk to my left, maybe, I don't know, 10. Paces maybe, and then they tell me to go down on my knees, which I do, and they tell me to uh, put my, you know, lace your hands behind your head, as you've seen on television. Which it felt like television, it felt like we were shooting a TV show. Uh, and uh, you know, I put my hands behind my behind my head. And somebody comes from my right and and brings my hands down behind me and puts the handcuffs on. I remember very clearly the the, the click. There's something there's something very final about that click. And uh, they took me uh, around to the uh, to the back of the squad car, and I told them that they'd been spoofed. And right about that time uh you know uh i heard one of their radio say, we've got a woman in a house dress at the door and my wife is at the door and they tell her to put her hands up and she's just like you know very you know and they, they you know she puts her hands up and they bring her over uh you know to near where we're standing and i asked the guy not to have her go down on her knees because she's got you know bad knees and hip issues and all the rest of the stuff and that's not going to be easy and um you know he's he, they're very nice about it and he says you know he says okay and uh, they clear the house. Um, my, uh, you know, the rest of the family, including my uh, three-year-old granddaughter, and uh, you know, then this basically this team with riot shields goes into the house to make sure there's no corpses anywhere. And then they, you know, they, they allow us to go back in the house, and uh, and they tell us, you know, they apologize. Chief of police was on scene. and They apologize and tell us, uh, you know, what's happened. And uh, you know, it's just.
0: Did they ever track it, trace it? Or they're anything?
1: supposedly still doing that. I've got to call and, and get an update because I'm not really sure. Right. Um. You know what's. Uh. You know what. What's. What's happening with it? But. Uh. You know it, this is apparently something that's been done to a lot of folks. I'll tell you something. I got. I got a. T- uh. Twi- uh Somebody tweeted me when I. Which I uh, mentioned that I was going to be here tonight, and they said, Hope, have a have a good time, but watch your back." Yeah, yeah and it? I and I'm like. I, I was wasn't sure if it was a threat or not. I, I went to the person's Twitter page and they seemed, you know, very lefty in their politics. I assume it was, you know, meant in good faith, but it was like, wow. Is this the world now? Is wow. this really the world now?
0: You know, well there was a, a frightening incident up in New York uh-huh. where a car backfired in Times Square and and people started stampeding out of yeah, I Times saw that. Square. I saw that. I saw that. No, this is a we're in a very dangerous time. And, and you must feel it, and and you continue to write, and we thank you for it. Well,
1: as I always tell people, no other saleable skills. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's what I got to do. Okay, yeah, here it is. You got it. I need some... So, this is a passage that we used uh, for a column some months back when the book first came out. Uh, this is when uh, one of the characters, Luther, um, Luther's is a black man who was sort of blackmailed into um, into joining the uh, joining the army, uh, and he ends up fighting with the 761st Tank Battalion. Luther's a man who's very bitter toward American, toward white American, in particular, because when he was nine, he saw his parents uh, lynched, burned alive at his own at his front door, and he's just you know that sort of shaped his entire life. And this is a scene that takes place when. he and the uh, 761st Tank Battalion uh, come, to the, uh, come to the gate of an unfamiliar, of a, of a camp that they find in, um, in uh, where is this, Germany, I guess it is. So let me see where I'm going to pick up here. Uh, what is it, Sarge? Asked Chuck Allen as the tank came to a halt. I'm not sure I know, said Clinton in that same hushed voice, but my God and then, without another word, he climbed out of the tank. Luther and the other men looked at each other. Then they followed their sergeant. Luther stood on top of the tank. He felt his mouth fall open. He felt his mind fumble for language, but there were no words. It was a camp of some sort, barracks arranged in neat rows, and hobbling, shuffling, tottering toward them from every direction came an assemblage of stick men in filthy black-and-white striped Prison suits. Maybe some of them were women, too. It was hard to tell. The creatures seemed sexless. Dazed, Luther dismounted the tank. His mouth was still open. The creatures swarmed the colored tankers. It was difficult to believe they were even human. Their eyes were like those of small, frightened animals, peering out from the caverns their eyes, their eye sockets had become. Their mouths were drawn tight against their bony jaws. You could look at them and see where tibia met patella, count their ribs by sight. They were little more than skeletons wearing rags of flesh, and their eyes gleamed with a madness of joy, an insanity of deliverance at the sight of the colored tankers. They shook clasped hands toward heaven. They smiled terrible, toothless smiles. They looked up at the Negro soldiers like penitents gazing upon the very throne of God. A woman, or at least he thought it was a woman, took Luther's hand and lifted it to her cheek. Her grip was like air. She held his skin to hers, which was papery and thin, almost translucent. Her face contorted into an expression of raw, sheer sorrow, raw, utter sorrow. And she made groaning sounds he could, that did not quite seem human. It took Luther a moment to realize that she was crying because her eyes remained dry. No water glistened on her cheeks. She had no tears left in her and luther who had never touched a white woman before who had never so much as brushed against one in a crowd who had avoided even that incidental contact with a kind of bone deep terror accessible only to a negro man in the deep south who grew up knowing all too well what messing with white women could get you could only uh, could only stare stand there i'm sorry stand there stricken and dumbfounded, as this woman pressed his hand to her cheek. He was a man who had seen his parents tortured and burned to death before his very eyes at his own front door by white people. It had never occurred to him that their capacity for bestial cruelty was not limited to the "'to the uh, woes they inflicted upon Negroes. "'But here was the proof, "'this poor thing whose gender he had to guess, "'this creature whose age might have been 16, "'might have been 60, "'holding his hand in her airy grip, "'crying without tears. "'Luther looked around. "'The place reeked of death and shit.' A stink of putrefaction that surely profaned the very nostrils of God. Naked and emaciated bodies lay stacked in piles exactly like cordwood, only their gaping mouths and sightless eyes attesting to the fact that once they had been human and alive. Flies droned above it all in great black clouds, a few of them occasionally descending to walk in the mouths and eyes of the dead. At length the crying woman got hold of herself. Luther gently took back his hand. She gave him a shy, weak smile, touched her feathery hand, to his shoulder, some sort of thank you, he supposed, and wandered slowly away. Luther watched her go, still dazed, still failed by language, and he still struggled to understand. It had never occurred to him, not even in his angriest, most bitter imaginings, that something like this was even possible. How could white people do this to white people? How could anybody do this to anybody? So powerful.
0: Thank you. The book is The Last Thing You Surrender. Leonard Pitts, thanks for being on The Literary Life. Thank you, sir.
1: My pleasure.